Hello everyone, this is Patrick Kiesling, one of the medical students on the team behind ENT in a Nutshell. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or Spotify so that you never miss an episode. Now, on to the episode. Hey everybody, welcome back for another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is John Marinelli and Today, we're joined by neurotologist Dr. Greg Basura to talk a little bit about approaching tinnitus. So, Dr. Basura, thank you so much for being here today. Well, thank you, John. I appreciate the opportunity to, to uh, chat with you today about a, a, a challenging clinical and a, challenge, and a challenging research um, problem. Just by way of introduction for our listeners, I just wanted to start out by saying broadly, you know, tinnitus is often broken down between pulsatile and non-pulsatile or tonal or subjective tinnitus. Um, Today, we will chiefly be focusing on on tonal or subjective tinnitus and leaving pulsatile or objective causes of tinnitus out because that's covered in other podcasts and different episodes like Glomus Tympanicum, for example. But Dr. Basura, could you tell us a little bit about how you like to define or what you think of when someone says tonal or subjective tinnitus? Yeah. So as you mentioned, you know, the, the field kind of describes an objective versus a subjective form. Objective, as you mentioned, is kind of what the provider or the, uh, you know, evaluator can, can appreciate. Usually that's pulsations. So whenever I see a patient that comes in, as I ask them about subjective, is it subjective? Is it something that only they can hear? And so really the field respects a definition that essentially states that tinnitus is really phantom perception of sound in the absence of a bona fide sound stimulus. So really it's only the tinnitus sufferer that appreciates it. The evaluator, clinician, um, they cannot, they cannot hear that. So, so really it's, it's isolated to the, to the, to the patient themselves. And then it comes in a lot of different flavors in terms of the qualitative, uh, components of it, where someone may describe it as a buzzing, ringing, hissing, air being let out of a tire or a balloon, ocean sounds, uh, music, uh, so it comes in all kinds of different flavors, but the the qualifying component there is that it's isolated to the to the patient. And how are these patients presenting to your clinic when you see them? So they they can present in all all kinds of different formats. Um, some will describe very specific uh, onsets. They'll describe very specific locations, meaning. Uh, I heard a loud crash and, or there was a gun blast at the gun range. And now my left ear is ringing like mad, or I just progressively have noticed that I've got this ringing in my head over the last six months. So it it behooves us as providers to really dig into the details and ask them so they can present in all kinds of different formats. And a lot of patients may not even know they have it. So I bring it up if, if it's not the chief complaint that the patient's coming to see me for, I will ask them about it if they're coming in for something like, say, hearing loss, for example. I'll say, oh, so do you have tinnitus? And they, some people may not even know what that is. Some people may know. Um, so there's, there's a lot of variability in what patients already know and how they present. And from what I understand, this is a pretty common problem, isn't it? Oh, it's very common. Absolutely. So I always stay, always joke with the patients that you can throw a rock in a crowd, you can hit somebody that's got tinnitus. And, you know, the estimates, you know, they're at least 10 to 15% uh, in the U.S. and maybe higher across the world. And then that gets substratified into those folks that might have more disabling variants. And as that, and as a result, you know, we've come up with things like the tinnitus handicap index to sort of begin to classify or subclassify 
the severities of these because it's subjective. So we have to take the patient's word at face value um, about exactly how troublesome or bothersome it is. And just touching on bothersome, you, you mentioned how bothersome it is to him. What are the key areas of the history that you like to elucidate when talking to the patient? Yeah, so it's always important to know, first of all, is it pulsatile or not? So I always definitely ask that because, as you mentioned, that can take you down a whole different different path if it's, if, if it's subjective um, or pulsatile. So I always want to know, when did it start um, and was there an inciting event? Because most tinnitus is related to hearing loss and typically within that uh, realm, sudden hearing loss and usually noise exposed sudden hearing loss. Uh, um, is, is usually the primary driver for this, for the etiology. Um, but I'll ask about, um, the location. Is it one ear or the, or, or is it both ears? Uh, is there anything that other than, um, an inciting event, is there anything that makes it better or worse? Uh, is there anything that they do that mitigates it? Head, neck movements, uh, masking noise at night, um, these types of things. Uh, I'll ask, also ask if they had any changes in their health at the time of the onset. Did they start a new medication? Did they have a systemic illness? Did they have a surgery? And then I always have to, you always got to touch base on their, uh, on otologic history. Have they had ever had ear surgery or an ear procedure? Do they have chronic ear infections? And I always ask them because a lot of infections, they may not know what that means. So I say, have you ever had blood or pus coming out of your ear canal? Name portend and acute otitis media, perforated drum, clastitoma. Uh, then I always ask about ear pain and I always ask about vestibular symptoms. Uh, do they have any vertigo attacks or anything like this? And then because we'll talk about later, you know, there's a somatic variant, uh, which we've learned in the literature that, that, uh, people with, um, bad necks or jaw dysfunction, temporal mandibular joint, uh, malocclusions, uh, or any kind of head and neck traumas, for example, they can have tinnitus that is modifiable with head and neck movements. So I always ask them about those uh, predisposing conditions. Did you just have dental work done before it happened, for example? So there's a lot of questions you need to ask and really dig into it to get the to get those details. And from a pathophysiology standpoint, I know it's still there's work being done on understanding it. But what do we think it causes tinnitus? Well, you know, there's uh, you know, this is where the research is uh, is becoming more promising, but is still not completely well known. As we know, there's a lot of things in cause tinnitus. It can be systematic. It can be uh, pharmacologic, as we know with high-dose aspirin. Um, but what the field has recognized is that uh, the tinnitus is typically thought to be um, an aberrancy in the central auditory circuits. And what's happening is it's usually related, because it's really usually related to hearing loss, that the inputs into the circuit are, are lower than what the central uh, circuit would expect. Therefore, there's a release of inhibition. And so this idea of central gain that goes all the way from essentially the, the brainstem, co uh, dorsal and ventral cochlear nuclei, all the way uh, through the midbrain thalamus up to the cortex have shown increased activity. And so the field has started to recognize from an electrophysiologic standpoint, a couple of neural correlates of tinnitus, at least in animal models, that would be thought as increased spontaneous neural firing rates and increased neurosynchrony. These neurons are not only firing faster on their own, but they're firing uh, in harmony or together. And so it's these neural correlates uh, that are thought to be in response usually to some kind of peripheral um, uh, aberrancy, whether that's hearing loss or uh, some other problem uh, that releases the inhibition and causes this hyperactivity within the circuits. 
And so when you're seeing a patient that has tinnitus, how do you like to work these patients up typically? So again, it's really important that you get into uh, the location of their perception. And fortunately, a lot of folks that come to, to my institution, by the time they see me in the clinic, if they're coming in for a, a complaint of tinnitus, we usually like to get an audiogram. So at, at the very baseline, you want excellent history, comprehensive head and neck exam, and, and you definitely need audiometric data. Because a lot of people may have an undisclosed hearing loss that they, that they can't really tell you about. And, and tuning fork testing does have its utility, but um, oftentimes it's not, it's not, um, doesn't give you a specific enough data to really hang your hat on. And so when I work these folks up, I uh, always get an audiogram and um, I like to look at what their hearing loss is. Um, because, you know, it, and again, it depends on you know, if we think that hearing loss is the primary driver, that with a good head and neck exam and their history will tell you a lot about where things are going. Plus, it may disclose something, as I mentioned, that they may not be aware of, an asymmetric hearing loss, which would then warrant an MRI um, or some other workup. Now, if someone comes in with just unilateral tinnitus, one-sided tinnitus, that's an immediate red flag right there. Because as the field knows, uh, one-sided tinnitus um, it can be indicative of a retrocochlear, intracochlear pathology. So therefore, that's pretty much, at least in the U.S., uh, that's going to mandate an, an eighth nerve or an inner ear protocol MRI to make sure there's not some form of a gadolinium-enhancing lesion, uh, you know, to include but not be limited to, say, a vestibular schwannoma. So it's important to, to talk about sightedness and then to get an audiogram at, at least at baseline. What do you think about the, we touched a little bit on role for imaging and unilateral tinnitus. I know it's a, an important topic in pulsatile tinnitus. Any other reasons you might get imaging in these patients? Yeah. I mean, if, again, so the automatic, you know, automatic testing, if, if someone says that they have, um, bilateral tinnitus or tinnitus arium is what the field would recommend that, or what they would, they would name that. And I get an audiogram that shows either, you know, a pure tone average that's uh, asymmetric, which, you know, the field would recommend three contiguous frequencies of 10 to 30 dBs or more. If we see a word discrimination score that could be greater than say 10 or 12% difference between the ears. And then certainly if their acoustic reflexes are either elevated or absent, or they show some kind of reflex decay, um, that would, that would tip you off. Do you want to get an MRI scan? Um, and you know, it depends on what other symptoms they might be describing. Uh, if there's concurrent, say, facial numbness, if there's facial uh, weakness, if they've had any other histories of uh, cranial nerve neuropathies, uh, then you might be wanting to, again, think about other options there too. Now, if, if it's a dental source or some kind of head and neck trauma, for example, an old trauma, or if you see something on the exam, you know, that might warrant a different modality, maybe like a CT scan of the temporal bone. But again, it really depends on what you're, what you're looking for. You know, by far and away with tinnitus and the concerns that we have for the inner ear, we're, we're thinking about schwannomas, we're thinking about meningiomas, and then you have a whole host of, of things that could occur like lipomas or, or even, you know, chondrosarcomas or things that might be more, um, uh, more ominous. Um, so it depends on what you see when, on, the, on the audiogram. It depends on what the patient is describing and, of course, the clinical findings. And any role for lab testing here? I usually don't. I usually don't on the first, um, on the first visit unless someone describes um, some other um, concern. Uh, of course, if there's a concern about infectious disease, then, of course, that you know, may warrant labs if you find something. 
but by and large, um, I usually don't get labs. Um, I know with sudden hearing loss, people have done full workups if, uh, for autoimmunity, say Lyme's disease, uh, these different things. But for tinnitus itself, um, and usually if it is tagged to, say, hearing loss, then you might work something up. But people that come in with tinnitus and, and kind of a classic hearing loss without any other uh, uh, concerning physical findings or history, uh, lab testing really is not indicated. Transition in a little bit to treatment um, now that we've talked about presentation, pathophysiology, and workup. You know, obviously, there's a number of different treatment modalities that people will pursue. But maybe if we could just start with lifestyle, behavioral lifestyle modifications, could you tell us a little bit about um, different routes people might try with that? Yeah, certainly. So, you know, there's, as we mentioned, there's a lot of things that can cause tinnitus. And so I always try to be very comprehensive with the patients. And I say the, the goal here is if we can find an underlying cause or at least something that's contributing to it then, you know, we, uh, that behooves us to, to address that first. So I always look at medications. Uh, so we always want to look at meds. So people that are on uh, high dose aspirin or, or the, uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories that we know that those can cause tinnitus, some, some forms of diuretics, even some, some antibiotics, for example, there's some recent literature about, you know, uh, maybe reflux medication as well. So I always try to time and look at medications, first of all, is an inciting event. Can you, can you change that? Other things we look at for or look for things that, um, are natural stimulants, things like caffeine, uh, nicotine, they're, they're weaker in terms of the literature suggesting that they're outright causes of tinnitus. But like my balance patients, I always try to have patients keep some kind of a subjective log, if you will, like a tinnitus log and say, okay, are there things that you do day to day, diet, sodium, uh, caffeine, uh, alcohol, nicotine? Is there anything that exacerbates or mitigates the tinnitus? And I think it's important that you start first look at that. Uh, I look at, uh, their, the hallmarks of good health. I look at sleep. I ask them always about, do they, are they, is the tinnitus keeping them awake? Uh, cause that might portend that there's anxiety and or depression. And that's very important to ask how tinnitus is affecting these patients because, the rates of anxiety and or depression are higher than people will admit, uh, but yet can be devastating because the you know the links between tinnitus and suicide are, are are well known. So it's important to ask about how it's affecting sleep. Are you sleeping well? If they're not, that increases stress, and we know that that can in the literature it's clear that stress can can um, exacerbate tinnitus. Uh, the diet thing we talked about, um, uh, you know, things that, uh, are they dehydrated or other issues that may, may or may not exacerbate blood volume and different things. Um, and then, uh, exercise, which would be also falling in the realm of stress reduction. I always ask about those types of things and how that's affected their life. But I, I really empower the patient to try and start to make associations between, um, the level of the tinnitus, whether it's good or bad. Uh, and, and based on the things that they're doing uh, day to day. Another treatment I've heard a bit about in this context is cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, could you tell us a little bit about how that is employed in this context? Well, cognitive behavioral therapy, that really was born out of the psychotherapy literature. And the idea was that the goal of that is to try to recognize some kind of maladaptive cognition or a result of something that's happening. Uh, and, and how that's tagged to some kind of, uh, effective behavior. So the idea, uh, you know, since this, this was used since like the 1980s with, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, and it's been shown 
that actually can control some tinnitus. And the idea is that uh, you're trying to re-educate the mind uh, to apply it to um, dampen, if you will, some of the anxiety and associated depression, even insomnias uh, that may be related to uh, the negative perception in this particular case, tinnitus. And so, so most CBT or, or cognitive behavioral therapy studies, um, they consist of about, you know, usually eight to 24 weekly, se- uh, weekly sessions. These can last, you know, an hour to two hours at a time. So it's very labor intensive. Typically you're working with some kind of a therapist face to face, or it could be even a group type session. And these can, and these types of treatments can involve concurrent psychoeducation, cognitive restructuring, uh, different kinds of mindfulness, stress relief. And so as we know that, that tinnitus can exacerbate these things, cognitive behavioral therapy is not basically geared to remove the tinnitus, but it's geared to sort of uh, tamp down some of the associative uh, negativities that are surrounding it that may be affecting the whole body. And previously you mentioned somatic tinnitus. Are there sp- specific treatment modalities for that? Well, this is an emerging field, and it's very exciting because the basic science has really uh, driven a lot of the current clinical trials that are going on. And and just in brief, somatic tinnitus is the idea, uh, and many researchers have have found that um, in in response to, say, for example, an animal model of tinnitus, uh, which is usually a noise-induced animal model, that the brainstem, and as I mentioned at the outset, uh, many of the central auditory circuits become hyperactive. Well, interestingly, at the brainstem, it's been shown that some of the trigeminal uh, inputs into the central circuits, uh, including the uh, spinal trigeminal nucleus, uh, these will actually increase their inputs into the to the brainstem dorsal cochlear nucleus. So it's been shown that the somatosensory inputs into the central auditory circuits right at the level of the brainstem are heightened in response to noise trauma, and in animals that show uh, behavioral evidence of tinnitus. So interesting data further suggests that when you stimulate with some kind of uh, delay between auditory and somatosensory, whether that be vibrotactile um, or what have you, um, that you can change neural firing rates across the central auditory circuit. So this idea of spike timing dependent plasticity or at the macro level, stimulus timing dependent plasticity uh, shows that central neural uh, activity can be harnessed and and um, controlled simply by changing the flow of information, sensor information, into the circuit. In humans, Levine has shown nicely that they're up to you know maybe sixty percent, maybe two thirds of people can actually modulate their tinnitus to a degree. And what does that mean? Well, if they open and close their jaw, they protrude the tongue. Uh, if they rub their face, they move the head, neck to the side. Um, by stimulating some of these vibrotactile and some of these somatosensory inputs, they're actually modulating the central auditory circuit. And so some recent work, um, Susan Shore and others have demonstrated um, nicely that by, by pairing auditory and somatosensory inputs into these circuits, that you can mitigate oftentimes uh, the, the tinnitus sufferer's perception. So ongoing um, trials using device development that, that simply uh, harnesses uh, pairing tones with um, a vibrotactile stimulation to the face, 
as well as other groups in the UK that are that are doing tongue stimulation, are showing very promising uh, data that um, that it's not just an auditory circuit, that there are other non-auditory sensory modalities that have um, a capacity to potentially uh, modulate uh, tinnitus perception. So it's very exciting going forward. Uh, and we'll see if, you know, if those touted somatic treatments will actually treat uh, tinnitus in, in sufferers who can't mitigate or exacerbate their tinnitus with head and neck movements. When we talk a little bit about, you mentioned another thing you mentioned before was masking therapy. Can you, can you describe that as a potential option as well? Yeah. So I think this is kind of the, the workhorse of, of tinnitus uh, treatments. You know, there's currently no FDA approved drug for it. And so it's really important that when you talk to a patient, you are very frank with them about expectations, about what, um, what is currently available, what is not currently available, because, you know, you know, Google.com is, is a good thing for a lot of things, but unfortunately for tinnitus treatments, it's, it can be dangerous because there's a lot of anecdotal things that people have tried and that aren't necessarily tried and true. They haven't gone through the appropriate, uh, you know, uh, studies. But one of the things that we've shown that's, 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 that has high success rates is the use of masking uh, noise. And so the idea is that you're overlaying sound, usually broadband noise, uh, over someone's tinnitus. So it's the idea of white noise at night. And hearing aids, as we mentioned, you know, most people that have tinnitus, they have hearing loss. And so there's a real opportunity there to rehabilitate the frequencies that they're missing, assuming they're in human speech frequency, and they have excellent word discrimination to rehabilitate hearing. But then some uh, hearing aids, and simply by you know, amplifying those, those frequencies, but also have built-in maskers, meaning the idea is that you're trying to find pitch-matched someone's tinnitus at a certain frequency, which you can do that using pure tones, and then try to target that by giving sound uh, to that, um, to mask that area and so, or turn up volumes next to it. So some of this masking, they call it notch therapy, where you're actually, um, turning up sound next to the tinnitus frequencies, um, to basically drown that out in a way. So, uh, most audiologists and most centers have a capacity to, uh, fit somebody and try to possibly place masking components as well, or to try to pitch match the tinnitus, which is uh, helpful. But in a lot of folks, this again is is not uh, it's not a, a curative, obviously, um, and so um, it behooves us to continue to look for those folks that um, that have tinnitus, but they don't appreciate any masking uh, benefits from that. And certainly, the other problem is that when you take the hearing aid off or the masking device off, for those folks who have excellent hearing and they just want to wear a masking uh, device, um, the tinnitus recurs. So it's really not a, a permanent fix, um, but for many, it can create uh, periods of relief, which uh, for them would be, um, you know, uh, that in itself is, uh, is beneficial. Another treatment modality I wanted to ask you about was cochlear implantation. I think sometimes it gets overlooked, obviously, because there's a smaller subset of the population that can get a cochlear implant, but could you just touch on tinnitus outcomes surrounding cochlear implantation? Yeah, so this is an ongoing field too, and it's it's a challenging one because, you know, most up until more recently, you know, to get a cochlear implant, you had to be bilaterally deafened. And so a lot of folks, interestingly, um, that are cochlear implant candidates by the traditional uh, measures, 
Um, a lot of them, if you ask them, a lot of them don't have tinnitus, which is another big enigma about this problem is that most tinnitus is caused by, caused by hearing loss, but those, but not everyone who has hearing loss has tinnitus. So it's a interesting finding. But in those that do have disabling tinnitus along with it, this does kind of help us to choose which ear, especially if they say, well, it's, it's my left ear more than my right, um, for example. Um, and there's data that suggests that it actually does help. I mean, there's uh, ongoing evidence uh, in, in one of the more recent studies um, by uh, Pim Van Dyke. Uh, they looked at some, they, they implanted about 44 people um, and they used the DHI after the fact. And they found that while, you know, a bulk of people had some tinnitus after their study, um, the, uh, a large, uh, about a third of those patients had some relief from that. The problem with this is that, um, is that, you know, you still have the other ear and so, um, they still could have, uh, uh, disruptive tinnitus, uh, in the non-implanted ear. Uh, we know that circuits are crossing. We know that that could be incomplete, for example. And what's fascinating is that as we're starting to implant more and more single-sided deafness folks, we're not seeing a lot of, of tinnitus in single-sided deafness folks. So um, the implant itself is really more for rehabilitation than tinnitus. But in those folks that do have single-sided deafness that, and they do have disabling tinnitus, um, it does help us to get them approved because um, a lot of these people can have very disabling tinnitus and they actually can have uh, a big improvement with the cochlear implant. So the data is still emerging on this, um, but the bottom line is in some of the people that have published work and showing that the, the outcomes are, what the outcomes are with um, tinnitus and cochlear implantation, they found that a shorter duration of the tinnitus prior to the implantation um, lent to a better outcome. Uh, more non-fluctuating types of tinnitus, which would suggest that um, maybe this is just a static onset of hearing loss, but um, an associated tinnitus versus some kind of fluctuating, maybe autoimmune uh, condition or something else. They had better results as well. Uh, those that had a higher uh, tinnitus handicap prior to implantation also did as well, um, for whatever reason. And there, there may be some basic science behind that that we could talk about. But uh, And then uh, they found, interestingly, that those who had a round-window surgical approach, maybe less cochlear trauma uh, or some hearing preservation um, with, a, uh, you know, with a shorter electrode or soft, soft surgery, um, and, uh, and younger patients typically had uh, better outcomes. So the data is not clear. Those are not hard and fast, but those are some characteristics to suggest uh, who might benefit from uh, cochlear implantation uh, with regard to their tinnitus alone. But this, as we go forward, we'll, we'll continue to um, uh, better understand um, the role cochlear implants have with ameliorating tinnitus. And kind of transition to the, the last portion I wanted to cover with you in the podcast. If you've determined that there's no underlying other etiology behind the patient's tinnitus, like a vestibular schwannoma or something like that, um, what does your follow-up typically look like for these patients? Well, you know, it, one of the interesting findings is that, you know, you can get an audiogram on someone and they have normal hearing and um, maybe they've had an MRI if it was a unilateral loss or unilateral perception, for example. Um, you know, what's, what's happening with these folks is that number one is it, you know, we haven't discussed the idea of hidden hearing loss. Hidden hearing loss is also a new concept. The idea is that 
you're having synaptopathies or cochlear, cochlear insults that, that are not quite disclosed on uh, generalized booth audiometric testing. So it's really important to think about um, that you know, patients could have uh, hidden hearing loss, and you'll have to follow that because the idea of ribbon synapses that um, are being pruned back maybe with noise exposures, but yet uh, because there's such an overabundance of those synapses, they haven't reached that magical threshold where you're seeing a, a detectable loss that you can uh, on booth testing. But nonetheless, they've, they've, they've had a synaptopathy, which tells you that there could be some underlying cause for the tinnitus. So for those folks, um, I continue to follow. Um, I will see patients back usually annually to check in. Um, a big reason I like to see them back, um, if I haven't disclosed some other treatable cause, medications, head or neck traumas, uh, dental um, uh, issues, um, is simply because I want to see how they're doing. I think um, it's really important to ask how, how this has bothered them um, and to provide them some kind of resources. You know, the placebo effect of the body is very powerful and the mind is very powerful. And the idea that by simply telling someone that they don't have a tumor um, will, will ease them and actually will drop some of their perception down just, just knowing that. So a lot of patients will, once you've told them they don't have some ominous finding on an MRI scan or some other finding, um, it, it almost relieves them to a point where they say, well, yeah, I can hear it, but it's, you know, this isn't too, it doesn't bother me. And another area that I find fascinating is the kind of the personality predispositions to how people respond to tinnitus. I have many patients that um, when I ask them about their tinnitus, they say, oh yeah, I've had that for years. That doesn't bother me at all. And then the other people that uh, they may be more type A driven people versus the type Bers, you know, this is, this is all anecdotal by the way, they, they key on it. They can't escape it. And those are the ones that I really worry about that have anxiety and they can develop depression. So even if you haven't found something bona fide, I think it's really important to continue to follow up with these folks to see how they're doing. Plus, number one, not just to see if they're developing anxiety and or depression or mental, mental illness. Uh, but number two is to see some of the things you've recommended. Are they helping? Lifestyle changes, uh, tinnitus masking, um, any cognitive uh, behavioral therapies, any tinnitus retraining therapies, which is more kind of a subconscious idea of kind of retraining central circuits. Um, are those helping? And so it's really important to get that feedback because I think for us to contribute to the field going forward, we need to collect more data to understand uh, what, what is helping these folks. Awesome. Well, before I move into the summary, is there anything else that maybe we didn't mention that you'd like to add before we close up? I think tinnitus, as we all know, is a challenging clinical problem. Uh, and I, I don't, I think tinnitus people, tinnitus patients really need to be uh, you need to spend time with them. They, you really have to develop a rapport with, with patients and you really need to be thorough because there's so many things that could be causing someone's tinnitus that can go overlooked. And I think if providers are too dismissive too quickly to say, oh, there's nothing we can do about it, just go mask it and, and go away. I don't think that we're doing patients a service at all. I think there's a lot of subtlety to the disease that is not, not does not fall under the categories of general generalities. I think like a lot of things in medicine now, it's becoming individualized. And I think tinnitus is a very similar individualized problem. Um, and so I think it, it really behooves us to, to dig into their history and all the variables we've talked about today and to explore options and to provide them with resources. 
Uh, at my uh, home institution, we have a tinnitus clinic where our audiologists will go through them and educate. I think the simple education itself does so much good. And it points patients to at least empower themselves to pursue things. And then, and then again, is you know the power of data collection and um, multi-institutional studies that will help us uh, down the line to to better get a handle on this disease is you know cannot be uh, overstated. Well, awesome! Thank you so much, Dr. Basura, for uh, joining us today. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right. Well, in summary of today's discussion, tinnitus is a very common problem. Up to maybe 15% of the general population experiences bothersome tinnitus within the last year. And the symptoms patients can describe is oftentimes very vast in terms of the qualitative nature of them. Everything from ringing, buzzing, um, ocean waves, music, hearing, um, like Dr. Basura said, like air coming out of a tire. Um, it's important when you're seeing these patients to get a very detailed otologic as well as just systemic medical history. Um, in terms of otologic history, get an idea of is there a sightedness to their tinnitus? Is there any subjective hearing loss, ear fullness, vertigo? And then get an idea of their medical comorbidities, any cardiovascular disease, audio, autoimmune disease, and then being mindful of their medication list as obviously numerous medications have been associated with tinnitus. Um, in terms of workup, Physical exam, obviously a complete head and neck physical exam with um, otomicroscopy is important, but workup typically also involves formal audiometric testing, helps you to identify asymmetric sensor neural hearing loss, um, which may require further imaging with to rule out retrochoclear pathology. There's other imaging modalities that depends on patient presentation, but that's kind of the chief thing to be mindful of. Uh, lab testing is typically not routinely performed in, in most centers. And then when we think about treatment, for most patients, the treatment will surround lifestyle modifications, CBT, and or masking therapy. Um, depends a little bit on, for patients with somatic tinnitus, as Dr. Basura mentioned, there's multiple areas of ongoing research, but even things related to, for instance, TMJ pain or bruxism, there may be a dental implant that they could use or being evaluated by an oral surgeon to um, look at potentially uh, TMJ surgery. Um, those are all things that are important to consider. And then one last piece that is often overlooked is the, is the utility of cochlear implantation in patients meeting audiometric criteria for cochlear implantation that actually a significant proportion of the population does experience benefit or at least reduction in their tinnitus symptomatology, although this is an active area of ongoing research. All right, last portion of the podcast here, I'll just ask a couple questions. I'll pause for a couple seconds to allow you to think about the answer, and then I'll give the answer. So first question of the day, when seeing a patient in clinic with tinnitus, what is the primary initial differentiator that is important to elucidate during history taking? So when seeing a patient who's complaining of tinnitus, the primary differentiator you need to be mindful of is, is the tinnitus pulsatile or non-pulsatile. You can ask about, can it be modulated with head and neck movements, jaw movements, or manipulation? And then it's always good to get an idea, is, is this bothersome? Meaning, does it have a negative effect on their quality of life? Get an idea of their chronicity. Is it greater than six months, for example? Laterality, as well as associated symptoms like hearing loss, as well as symptoms that or things that they found that might exacerbate or improve their tinnitus. Next question, when is it appropriate to get imaging in the work of, of tinnitus? So in patients with unilateral tinnitus, pulsatile tinnitus, neurologic abnormalities such as other cranial neuropathies, 
or asymmetrical hearing loss. It's all appropriate according to the most recent clinical practice guideline released from the academy. Of note though, if, if a patient is presenting with unilateral tinnitus, typically the workup will initially proceed with audiometric testing before going straight to imaging. And last question, which therapy or therapies are approved by the FDA for the treatment of tinnitus? Trick question, no therapies are approved by the FDA for the treatment of tinnitus. The treatment modalities chiefly surround lifestyle modifications, CBT, masking therapies, such as the use of a white noise or even a hearing aid, cochlear implantation for those who qualify from a hearing loss standpoint, and then identifying patients with somatic variants such as TMJ, bruxism, or dental issues that may benefit from dental devices or TMJ surgery. Alrighty, well that will wrap things up for today. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll catch you next time.